Well, welcome to episode 53 of The Professor and the Hack. Doesn't the time pass when you have it? We're getting time? old, Hugh. We're getting old in the yeah. podcast sense. In, in, hack, in, in prof and hack <laughs> sense, we, we are, it's not a bad thing, you know. You know, Better to get older to die, as they say. Um, <laughs> Professor Peter Van Onselen, how good to talk to you again. Uh, much to talk about today. I mean, uh, one of the things that uh, I really wanted to talk about today is uh, how we get out economically and, mm. and maybe to maybe spend a bit of time talking about the economics of it because uh, it, it is very obvious at this stage there's no snap back to the former economy which was the promise that was uh, first dangled uh, rather optimistically by uh, the prime minister at the start of all of this uh, mess just you know just a few months ago um, that it's going to be a long shape uh, an L mm. shape people are saying to get us out of this sort of thing. And, and, and we look at it and we think, what are the tools that are available to, to get us all going? Sure, we're opening up a little bit, that's all fine. But uh, plainly from the PM, there's not much money left that the government wants to, uh, to slash out. They're looking to try to sort of end the handing out and to sort of start to bring it back in again. And there are not many tools left for the Reserve Bank. What's, what, what is going to happen, Peter? Yeah, look, uh, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? I was, I, when you started talking to you i thought maybe i should get a pen and paper if you had the if you had the solution for the way out of here i, I should i should write it down and uh, make my investments accordingly it, it is brutal isn't it uh, to to try to get your head around how it's going to happen i remember early on and by early on i mean before lockdown uh, where some ministers when parliament was still sitting in fact at the very beginning of this year so we knew what had happened in wuhan but we didn't yet have a full picture of of it traversing the globe and obviously hitting us here in Australia as well, the virus I'm talking about. I remember a, a senior minister telling me that uh, yeah, he, his biggest concern, uh, he had a faith in our ability to manage the health crisis, was the economic crisis uh, and how we come out the other side. At that time, though, a lot of people were talking about what you were saying, that V-shape, uh, rather than it being more like, as you say, an L, but like an L that one of your children does where they can't keep the line on the horizontal and it sort of creeps above it. That's the best that we seem to be hoping for with growth out of this. Where do we go or how does it get fashioned? The, the thing the government has to be careful about here, I think, is getting the balance right on when it starts reducing assistance because its ideological predilection would be to start reducing assistance sooner rather than later. But if that's at the expense of economic growth, then you're not growing the pie and you're not, if you like, using growth to reduce debt as a percentage of GDP rather than as an overall number. But if you go the other way, in fairness to the government's ideological position, if you go to the other ideological extreme and if you keep handing out for too long beyond what is necessary, then the debt burden in the longer term perhaps becomes a bigger handbrake on growth than it otherwise could or should have been. So it's about balance. It was Josh Frydenberg who said, ideology doesn't come into it during a crisis. Well, ideology needs to also stay out of it to some extent in the aftermath of the crisis as we try to work our way out of it. A lot of talk about growth. Uh, growth is dependent on many things, but it seems to me that uh, FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, had it probably right in the Great Depression when he said, uh, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Essentially, confidence lies at the heart of it. It's the willingness for people to go out and spend money, confident that they will have their jobs to cover whatever they're spending their money on. Uh, mm. Confidence comes and is so much associated with employment. 
and, and the sense that our jobs are still going to be there with us uh, doesn't and plainly there's a cyclical effect there if you don't have confidence and you don't spend and then therefore someone else's job disappears and so they lose their confidence uh, how much how does the government play this game this critical game of sustaining confidence uh, a realistic sense that things will get better how do they go about that particularly when they come to as you've just said the necessary processes they will see it of starting to wind back on JobKeeper, winding back on other things they're going to put a, a weights into the federal budget well they really need that confidence uh, because if people aren't spending then the growth isn't there uh, but people will be necessarily reticent to spend or to invest because of the very crisis at hand so it almost becomes the equivalent of a wicked problem uh, in that sense. I mean, would you, for example, uh, be inclined uh, to home renovate if you didn't already have it booked in? Would you be inclined to buy an investment property now rather than wait and see what happens to the market? Would you jump in on the stock market? Maybe that's one of the few that you might do because the few might be, uh, even though you don't want to catch a knife on the way down, perhaps it's far enough down that you think you're okay. But in a lot of these answers, particularly about discretionary spending as well, would you be going out and buying uh, your wife that necklace she always wanted? Maybe you would because in lockdown, you need to try to hold that marriage together. But, you know, in a lot of these situations, spending is is something people are disinclined to do because they... Yeah, I, yes, because I, I, I see it even in far more basic terms rather than investing in the stock market and so on. But... Do you buy a bicycle for the boy's birthday? To quote the uh, uh, the famous um, Elvis Costello song, uh, uh, you know, a new winter coat for the wife and a bicycle on the boy's birthday. Do do you spend those uh, very very low key domestic uh, spends that are discretionary, but they're essential? We're not talking about investing for your future or buying an investment property. It really is going to be on households and how they spend money. Because we saw what an impact it was when, when people were panic buying, that uh, we saw those retail sales figures went up through the roof in, in March, I think, were the figures. Mm. And then, uh, and then plummeted. And then when, when people were satisfied that the, the you know, supply chains were such that there was no need anymore for that panic buying, then the sales went down by 17%, the biggest fall that they'd ever had in a single month. So households have enormous impact in, in, in both um, the overall blood that's going through the economy, but also, in a sense, the, the confidence loop itself is driven at a time like this in part by just what people over the kitchen table, what decisions they're making. And, and this is the bit that really concerns me because I think that there is um, now post panic buying a kind of a seal the wallet sense upon mm, the nation. I think that's right. And that is going to be really difficult to unwind. And, and you know, the, the, I mean, the, not, not to make people even more depressed about this as they're listening, but what we are talking about is the dilemma for the economy amongst those of us who are fortunate enough to still have jobs and have means, but just deciding to be cautious, which is of itself an economic risk for the, for the wider budget and so on. Spare a thought for the hundreds of thousands of people not in that category, you know, people who have actually had their income entirely eroded if they've joined the job seeker queues or significantly eroded 
uh, if they've become part of the underemployed group, which shot up from in the 4% to in the 13% in the latest survey. And we know it will only go higher before it starts to become lower again. So in a sense, it's a double whammy, isn't it? People who no longer have the means, by definition, not only aren't spending, but they're drawing on the government in their time of need, which is of itself a hit to the budget. But then uh, you've got the rest of us, uh, you know, touch wood that we stay part of the rest of us who still have employment, but are just being cautious because you look around and you think, well, how long will it take for us to bounce out of this? And all of that, Hugh, comes back to where you started this discussion, which is that the snapback concept isn't going to be a snapback. It won't be a V-shaped curve in the recovery far, far from it. And then, and maybe this is the next thing we chat about, then you have the discussion about what any return to normal whenever or however we get there should look like because Labor are raising the point that even if there is a snapback, do we really want to go back to where we were? Uh, Has this crisis unveiled for us the need to change employment structures and all the rest of it um, because of, you know, the exposing, if you like, of the uncertainty in the jobs market or in elements of the economy uh, that we've seen. It is interesting, isn't it? Because my mood at the moment is quite pessimistic and I apologize if you're listening to this. (laughs) And uh, if you look to say investment properties, I've seen it written that in fact, the investment sector property, uh, investment uh, facing sector of of the property market may do well, according to some analysts, because if you do have money that you're looking to invest, you know, you've got that spare million or two, um, then investment property yields are low but nevertheless they exist and so when everything else is looking as dodgy as hell there is an argument that um uh, that uh, some investment property investing may work by the way you'll be hearing some drilling in the background <laughs> and uh, that's because at this uh, at this very time our, our water pump decided to explode and so i'm investing a little money with some people out the back there getting ourselves a new investment uh, getting ourselves a new water. Do you pump, live uh, near question. me? Because I've had this drill <laughs> whinged about on this not... podcast into infinitum during the course of this lockdown. Do, do we, are we neighbours and I'm not aware of it? I'd love to say I'm putting. I'm love, <laughs> I'd love to say that I'm putting a swimming pool in and I'm drilling into the bedrock uh, in order to make it as is happening to your uh, neighbours. But no, it's it's much more functional levels. It must but be the, the world's thing... deepest swimming pool, just as an aside, because this drilling has literally lived through lockdown. Anyway, we move on. We move on. You can go off the high board. That's uh, that, that's the main thing. Because the other thing which I've heard about is what's what retail analysts are talking about as a recessionary mindset. So that even if, say, for the sake of the argument, um, there was to be much more promising stuff happening in COVID, the underlying issues are starting to fix up, that something, some little switch has gone off in people's heads and they're inclined not to spend, even if they're feeling personally quite secure in their jobs. And, and why would you feel secure in your job at the moment? There'd be very few people who'd be feeling uh, all that secure in their jobs unless they're, you know, firefighters, police officers, people that, that you know that they can't just simply hold us, bowl us, lay off. So, um, so, so this is the question. Let, let, the, the tools available are, broadly speaking, fiscal and monetary. They're what the government can do, the fiscal side of what you spend, what, even if you borrow to spend, and then the monetary policy, which is the Reserve Bank, which traditionally would cut interest rates to help to boost things. Now, the cupboard is almost bare on monetary policy. The interest rates are so low. The cupboard is almost bare, it would appear, on fiscal policy, what the government is willing to spend. So Mm. if those two stimulatory tools, the levers, 
are no longer particularly available, what is left? And particularly what is left as they start to wind back on JobKeeper, which has got 6 million people are dependent on it across Australia. Well, let, 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 let me, I mean, just a very quick point in this idea of people spending less either because they can't afford to or because they're being cautious. The other element, of course, is the cultural shift during months of lockdown where you, by definition, spend less and you get used to not going out as much and people might want to break out of that and do a little bit of it because they've missed it as the lockdown eases, but then they can perhaps return to a more solitary life or, or, or certainly a less outward focused life, which means less spending in the economy. So that's, that's not to be ignored either. Uh, but I, look, where, where, um, you know, where, where we go with this, I think it's important to note that the government does try to keep telling us that there's, you know, not a money tree, which obviously by definition there's not. Uh, but we are in a position, according to a lot of economists, if we decide that the spending to try to get the economy moving is going to take a lot of time with a lot more money rolling out the door than already has over a lot longer period, we actually as a nation are in a position to do that. Now, yes, it would see uh, debt to GDP keep going north and quite substantially so, but we're not in the position of a USA or certainly somewhere like in Italy or a or a Japan, which doesn't have the fiscal capacity to do that, we really can ramp that up over a significant amount of time, albeit out the other side, being highly indebted. But we wouldn't be anywhere near as highly indebted in terms of GDP as a debt as a percentage of GDP as we were at the end of World War II, for example. And then we grew our way out of it very dramatically after that. Now, there's no guarantees that we grow our way out of it. That's part of the concern people have. But let's be clear, Australia is one of the lucky countries right now that if a government decides that it's necessary, we can do JobKeeper for years, to be clear, literally years, before we end up in a debt situation like the US or certainly, as I say, some of the other nations like Japan. So it is a decision of government. It's a public policy decision whether they think uh, that is worth doing or not. When they try to tell you it can't be done, they're wrong because they're actually taking an ideological view of the amount of debt that we have and what they consider sustainable. And I just think people need, and maybe that is the direction that we go because people say, you know what, I'm more afraid of debt becoming like what it is in other parts of the world or like what it was post-World War II as a percentage of GDP than I am of slow growth and, and more people losing their jobs because of the benefits being taken away. But it is an actual choice for a country like ours in a way that it won't be for a lot of other parts of the world. Yeah, it's certainly never been the way that Australia, certainly for decades, has seen itself as uh, uh, as being one of those countries. We've proudly seen ourselves as being, you know, at least theoretically around a balanced budget kind of a uh, mm. of a society. But uh, look, let's take a little break. I'll, I'll try not to be so pessimistic when we come back on the other side <laughs> of the line. Uh, PVO, stay just there. Hi, everyone. This is Ange Bishop letting you know that if you're stuck in lockdown and looking for something to do after you've watched Studio 10, of course, have a listen to some of our 10 Speaks podcasts. Ramsey Beat takes a look behind the scenes of iconic TV show Neighbours as it celebrates its 35th anniversary. There's the Husey We Have a Problem podcast, which is the best bits from the fantastic TV show. And our Reality Bite podcasts, Cocktails and Roses and Jungle Nights for when you're feeling like a reality TV deep dive. 
While you're at it, give the Starstruck with Angela Bishop podcast a go. Find them all on the 10 Speaks page on 10Play or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to episode 53 of The Professor and the Hack. And I should have said at the beginning, I am the hack, Hugh Remington, and I hope the drilling will uh, will not uh, interrupt us too much uh, as as we keep going on there. Now, PBO, there is a segment of, uh, of society who's feeling particularly not just vulnerable, but unloved at the moment. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's self-funded retirees, actually, Hugh. And it, it's an interesting one because... A lot of what I've written and spoken about for years now is that they get too many benefits, you know, tax concessions around super and, and, and all the rest of it, certainly compared to people who are trying to, if you like, scrimp and save to be able to put a deposit down on a home when homes were going up and up and up in value. But actually, in the context of this pandemic, you really do have to spare a thought, particularly for self-funded retirees. I mean, not only are they of an age where they're most at risk to the virus, which of course would be scary enough and isolating enough as well from a mental health perspective uh, when they can't see grandchildren and all the rest of it at this time, but financially, they're in a really difficult bind at the moment. Pensioners are getting an increase in their pension. It's nothing you know, to crow about, but it's, it's something. Self-funded retirees, the problem is the premise to their situation. Uh, whether they get tax advantages or not, which they do, uh, you know, the, the dividends aren't what they once were. The value of their investments aren't what they once were. And of course, we're also in a low interest environment, which is going to be a sustained low interest environment, it would seem at least for a while to come. So with the stock market, you know, some blue chip stock coming off even a half uh, in terms of banks, for example, are certainly losing a third of their value. They're also traditional companies that would get a guaranteed dividend of, you know, four, five, six, even 7%, which these funds rely on to pay out the annual uh, wages, if you like, to people who are self-funded retirees to live on. They're not paying out those dividends at the moment. Some aren't paying any dividends. They're certainly not paying what they once were. So the bulk of the money has gone down by a third or a half, half in value, and they're not getting dividend payments, and they're not getting government benefits uh, in a way that others are through job seeker, job keeper, and indeed some of the changes to the pension. And it's a low interest rate environment, so they can't exactly put the money into cash and reap a benefit either because the, the ability to get income there is at about 1% at best, if not much, much lower. So what do they do? Well, their best option, their only option really at the moment is to draw down on the actual capital that they have, you know, the principal, I should say. But if they do that, then they're doing so at a time where it's already lost as much as half of its value in the market. So self-funded retirees, who I don't normally have a great deal of sympathy for with all the benefits that they've had uh, through a sustained period of time, they are really doing it tough now. Uh, and I mean, uh, here's the ultimate the, irony. Hang on, the I want to get to the irony. Save the irony, save the irony, because I do want to just make this point that self-funded retirees are such a huge band of people when 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 malcolm turnbull finally retires he will be a self-funded retiree he'll have hundreds of millions of dollars so well, you have not the one to feel of, sorry for <laughs> no, so, and but this is this is the difficulty about it is that mm. some have have put positioned themselves fantastically well with a lot of money um but i think the people that you're really talking about are those who say might have uh may have a capital base of a million bucks or something exactly um, and 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 at that point, this is where you're seeing people who are, uh, who are if, if they're not going into their capital to live, are getting far less than the pension. Well, yeah, that's exactly right. So it's, it's, it, what it is, is it's the self-funded retiree who has just enough 
not to qualify for a pension or a part pension or also a whole bunch of concessionary cards that make, uh, you know, make, make living expenses reduce further than they otherwise would. That's the person you feel really sorry for. The person that's got 10 million bucks uh, invested, that's getting all sorts of tax advantages for it. They're worse off, but Crimea River, you know, they're not able to travel internationally anyway at the moment. So their yearly trip to the, the warm climate of Greece is off for the time being, even though we know that Greece has just opened up to tourism. So, you know, they're not the ones to feel sorry for. Malcolm Turnbull is, a, is a, an example of that at a higher income band. It's the ones that are just missing out on the pension or the part pension, who really are the ones that, you know, we need to admire in some ways because they're the ones that are not, not that I'm attacking pensions here, but they're not a burden on the taxmen because they have found a way to self-fund, but they're caught now in a really difficult bind. But here's the irony, Hugh. The irony is, uh, and perhaps this will make some people not feel as sorry for them, this is the cohort uh, who delivered this government its re-election because it was the franking credit policy of Bill Shorten that was such a pivotal part of the election campaign and such a pivotal part of the scare campaign that the government ran against Labor, en masse self-funded retirees through the election data that we've seen were, I mean, they already favoured the coalition, traditionally the Liberal Party. However, they were doing so even more disproportionately at the last election because of that difference around franking credits policies. Well, guess what? The re-elected government that they got re-elected is, so far at least, doing four-fifths of nothing uh, to be able to try to help them in a time like this. And it is that cohort that, I'm glad you pointed that out, it's that cohort that don't use the extra tax concessions to buy a boat or two. It's the cohort that do it just to keep themselves off the pension uh, and therefore are an asset to the rest of us because they're not drawing down, but they are in real trouble now. Low interest rates, all the rest of it. So, so I actually feel quite strongly for, for them in their favour, those who are at that level, mm. who, who are at the lower end of the self-funded uh, self retirees, because um, in a sense, they have lived up to a model of stoic self-reliance. Uh, they're not necessarily wealthy. And, and, and we do need to sort of define out those who have been, you know, rapacious and successful capitalists and made pots of gold and all the rest of it the people who essentially through grift and thrift have have worked out a way to sort of try and uh, keep it together they probably vote um as you say for the coalition anyway so i don't think they were ones who really swung the last election uh, in vast number i think the ones who the franking credit scare campaign worked so successfully on were the people who in fact were never going to make money out of uh, out of uh, the the franking credits because they just said and, and that, that is a lot of these there. people though they, they, and i agree Hugh. I, I the franking credit scare campaign i think swung voters who actually that's part of what i think is the irony of it it swung voters who fall into this category i'm talking about uh, the lower end self-funded retirees who do swing to some extent even though they do traditionally support the coalition more than labor but a whole bunch of them that, that would ordinarily be a swinging voter at the time of a governmental change where, they're, where they're, they're sick of a coalition government. A lot of them would have voted for Rudd over Howard, for example, at the tail end of the Howard years just because they thought it was time and they thought he was conservative enough until they changed their mind. They were willing to punish, I think, the coalition. But then all of a sudden, the Franken's credit policy scared them uh, and the scare campaign worked by Scott Morrison and others. But they weren't really significant beneficiaries uh, of the Franken credit's policy as it's currently constituted. But they've now you know, helped re-elect this government, uh, that's fine, but they're caught. And, and you know what's even more ironic about it for them, which, you know, which makes you feel more for them? They're caught 
but they're not getting any love from Labor either. I mean, the Labor Party are out there saying, you can't go back to what the new start rate was before. You need to expand JobKeeper either in length of time or to count for people who work for foreign companies. What about universities? What about casuals? They've got all of these various elements that they're raising concerns about in the way that stimulus is rolling out the door. But I haven't heard a peep out of them when it comes to concern about self-funded retirees. Maybe that's because they're still licking their wound in the wake of the franking credits. It's a whole generation, which ironically, yeah, it's, it's the baby boomers as well. So it's a big voting cohort at a time where we're living longer uh, because of you know, various elements. But for some reason, they're not sitting front and centre in this pandemic as somebody to be looked after in some form. I know that uh, Seniors Australia, they've turned around and talked about the idea of a universal pension, which can apply no matter what your income. I, I don't know that that's the answer because you don't want to be giving the Malcolm Turnbulls of this world the pension as well, and he wouldn't want it, I, let me say at a personal level for him. But you know, there has to be something looked at in on this front. I don't know what it is, but uh, you, know, you feel for them at a time like this. Yeah, um, I mean, a lot of the, the people, one of the stories which I think really, really struck me was that after the election of Morrison got elected, there were the pensioners turning up at Centrelink uh, looking, asking how they were going to get these checks that they were going to get uh, because they voted for Morrison. And so therefore they had confused, they'd been confused by the scare campaign into, mm. into believing that somehow or other they were going to get money uh, from the government. Uh, Frank and Craig's not quite understanding what the process was, but somehow or other they were going to get a check from the government. So, you know, that, that, that never came to pass. Um, it, look, it's, one of the things if JobKeeper is going to be held on that they're going to have to do is to uh, squeeze out some of the anomalies that are plainly there where there's plenty of evidence now coming around that we talked about a little earlier about how uh, large billion dollar companies are, are, are working the system as creating, you know, or, or shifting money around into various little companies, deferring, sending out bills, you know, all these sorts of things in order to get JobKeeper money coming in. So if JobKeeper is going to become a permanent part of the landscape, Scott Morrison doesn't want it to be so, uh, then nevertheless, it's going to have to do a lot of work to try to to, to retarget that, then it becomes more bureaucratic and, and so on. But um, let's just move on to a couple of other subjects that are around. We, we need to bear in mind that Australia at the moment, as we speak, has a death toll of 100. Uh, in the United States, are about to hit 100,000. Uh, we are reopening. Uh, our hopes, as always, and has have been, have been that our export sector will work well, that uh, we're blessed with these resources, food and, and fibre and the stuff that we dig up out of the ground and that this has helped to underpin us for, for generations. Uh, China is so critical to that, and yet our relationship with China at the moment is probably at a new low. Uh, the United States has decided in an election year to double down in in making China the bad guy. Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, uh, you know, gratuitously coming out and saying that China has been ruled by a brutal authoritarian regime since the communists took over in 1949, uh, and that uh, claiming that China is uh, is ideologically and politically hostile to the free nations of the world, and that that has been underestimated. We're back into a very ugly place. Uh, when it comes to sorting out uh, our major trading partner, but also the deepening political and geopolitical divides that are going on there. How do we play it? Yeah, well, God, uh, I mean, I probably better ask you that question, actually, how you think we play it. We, uh, we, we've put ourselves at the vanguard of, of, of this to some extent. I, I never liked the idea of Australia 
uh, you know, kowtowing to the bullying of, of any country, much less a non-democracy like China. But I'm also cognizant that you don't need to poke at it unnecessarily to then put yourself in that situation where I'm going to say, let's not kowtow to their bullying. So where do you think that the line sits on that, Hugh? Because, you know, at one level, we have poked China, but I don't know. Like I almost am inclined to defend even the Mavericks. You know, I don't, you know, you're George Christensen and you're Andrew Hastings. These guys say a lot of dumb things. But one of the things I like about living in a democracy is that people can say dumb things and not end up in jail for it. Uh, and, and so if they poke uh, China in various ways and China retaliates, I think that says more about, if it is as cause and effect as that, I think that says more about China and the way they do things uh, than it does about us. Hey, look, I, I, gr- I agree with that. I think Pompeo is saying that the world is waking up to the fact that uh, uh, China is authoritarian and that it is hostile to the free nations of the world. And I think um, the, the, the cuddly panda image, as opposed to the Chinese dragon image, is mm. one that we've wanted to believe in because it's worked for us and China has it suited China to, um, uh, to present that, that image to the world. Uh, I, I certainly, uh, I, I certainly have found, you know, that, that it's useful to make a distinction between people of Chinese heritage and a Chinese government, uh, quite plainly. Um, so there's no excuses here for, for some of the racism and the weirdness that has come out in recent in times Very in, true. Around, Very around the fringes of it. But it is, it is going to be a more and more difficult relationship to manage. I think that is becoming clear to us. Um, as the stresses go on, uh, China has its own stresses going on. And we see a, a, a split within Australia. Victoria is signing up to this um, Belt and Road Initiative, which is the big uh, Xi Jinping central global policy of establishing um, this sort of vast infrastructure system through through Asia and that Victoria against security advice has decided to sign up to it. There's, you know, it's been pointed out that uh, as Victoria looks to its own uh, COVID, uh, you know, exit uh, plan, uh, it hasn't ruled out the possibility that in in the the tens of billions of dollars that'll be required that it that it, that it might seek some funding for that from China. The the difficulty in dealing with China on things like the Belt Belt and Road Initiative and its other vast infrastructure projects is that it tends to come on Chinese terms, and uh, and they are quite brutal in the way in which they're using this to to use the debt that they then load up for. Uh, you know, pre- un- under uh, underwriting infrastructure projects, etc. Ultimately, as a way to gain leverage over countries and, and over economies that they have made friends of. Uh, my feeling about about China is that we're moving into. We've got two things going on at the same time, and both of them are really ugly. One is that we have a pandemic which has shaken the world economically, and the recovery from that I think will be long. At the same time, we've got China that is coming to the point of uh of collision with the united states in particular and other parts mm. of the world and the gloves are starting to come off those kinds of um those kinds of theatrical chinese opera masks that are worn are starting to drop off and a bit more of the reality of what that superpower rivalry might look like is starting to shape up so we're into a particularly difficult historical time anyway that would have happened 
Turnbull used to warn about this all the time. Rudd knows it very deeply because of his deep sense of understanding of how the Chinese system works. But we're having it at a time when uh, all economies of the world, but particularly those democracies of the world, are shaken to their core by how they're going to deal with the pandemic and the economic consequences of it. Yeah, and for better or worse, uh, you then inject into that uh, Donald Trump uh, and the potential of four more years of him with with all the variables that a maverick in the White House creates, but also the change in China, obviously. Um, you know, lifetime leadership and the adjustment uh, to what was a much more administrative communist structure rather than straight-out authoritarian singular construct. And I think these things all come together and it, it makes it even more volatile at the moment. So, and, yeah, and here we are right in the middle of it, right? You know, where from a trade perspective, our prosperity is inextricably linked to China. Yet, of course, our cultural heritage and our alliance structuring is inextricably linked to the United States. And uh, the kind so, of life that we want to live, whether it's the United States or just simply concepts of Western democracy. Mm, uh, we, we, we are attached to that and so we should be. So, well, although that's interesting too, though, Hugh. I mean, I am deeply attached to it, as I know you are. Uh, but, and maybe this is concerning for people like you and I, uh, older people, dare I say it, uh, younger Australians are far less concerned about a lot of these principles, partly because I think they haven't either read enough or lived enough through some of it being tested. Like even just living through the Cold War is something that young people have not done now uh, with how far off in the distance it was. But the, the survey research tells us that younger people aren't as concerned uh, about a lot of these rights uh, as middle-aged and, and older Australians are. Now, and, and I've even seen that in some of my university lectures, actually, uh, with, with, with a surprisingly relaxed attitude um, about uh, you know, elements of socialism that go beyond the economic ideological debate, but actually push further than that. And, and that will be interesting to see if that changes, actually. Does it change in the wake of you know, the rise and rise of China and some of the outward positioning that we're seeing now? Indeed, as some of the civil liberties debate seems to have changed a little bit, as we've seen around the, the COVID app and, and, and other surveillance elements, you know, that, that has re-sparked in some people's um, minds, or at least sparked for the first time in younger voters, their, their concern about civil liberties, which had waned dramatically from 20 years ago when I first started doing some lecturing on this. We are in a time of great uh, global uh, shift and change. And uh, we like on this podcast, PVO, you and I, to have a few laughs and to, uh, to, to deal with serious matters in a, in a hopefully a, in, a, in, a, in, a somewhat, in a somewhat entertaining way. This has been the, the, the pessimist's report of uh, the professor and the hack. Uh, I think we, we do feel the, the sense of the gloom uh, not 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 the gloom necessarily, but definitely the profoundness of the difficulties that we're facing. We're mm. out of time this time, unfortunately, but um, much more to discuss as uh, as we all try and navigate the times ahead. Professor, talk Peter next Anderson, time. Great to talk to you. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.
Hey, Husey here. You can't get enough of Husey. We have a problem. Channel 10's hit show. Well, now there's more to get. We've got a podcast. Find it at your favourite podcast app.